0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the current state of abortion rights. Hint, they are already in tatters. And then we're going to speculate about what's to come as Roe vs. Wade faces relentless chipping away and the possibility of full repeal. Clips today come from Making Contact, Boom! Lawyered, The Diane Reem Show, Science Versus, The Tom Hartman Program, and
1: Start Making Sense. Some state houses across the country are already poised to consider banning abortion if Roe v. Wade is dismantled. I sat down with Norbeze Flint, Policy Director at Black Women for Wellness Los Angeles. We talked about some of the potential changes to reproductive health care access under the current U.S. Supreme Court and other changes that have been underway for several years. I'm wondering if you could talk about the criminalization
2: of miscarriage in the United States and how it's played out in certain states? There are about 38 states that have some type of feticide laws, right? Um, So those laws having to do with the treatment um, of a fetus. Um, However, about, I believe, 16 or 17 of them have one, or ones that don't have an exception for the mother, right? And so what that is looking like, or what is happening in recent years, is that, Prosecutors and judges have been using some of these fetic- feticide laws to start convicting and looking at how to criminalize pregnant women. The most famous of ones is Purvi Patel, um, who was in prison for three years of allegedly ending her pregnancy before she was finally freed by an appellate court. Um, and she was charged with homicide. Um, but there are stories all over the country with women who have, um, been charged with murder, homicide, manslaughter, from having stillborns. And so we're seeing an upkick of uh, prosecutors, particularly in some of these states um, that are leaning more conservative, of finding very creative ways to criminalize women. And I think it's really important also to... Um, highlight that many of the women who get criminalized are women of color, right? If it's Black, Latina, South Asian, Asian, those are the folks who are looking at aren't getting criminalized for these behaviors. So it's just another way of folks um trying to control women's bodies, but also criminalizing Black and brown bodies.
1: Can you talk about the differences between the different moves that uh, different states are making to restrict abortion access mm-hmm.
2: versus say, a personhood movement? I want to say about 2008, it seemed to be a direct effort by many of the anti-choice organizations to look locally. Um, And many of them, many of those organizations and funding started looking at how to take over states, Um, while I think most of us in the REPO world was still looking at the kind of federal landscape. With that being said, um, the vast majority of states have been, for the last seven years, have been passing anti-choice legislation. Um, And they have both conservative-leaning houses, um, so legislators and governors, and that has resulted in um, a whole bunch of, I think it was 13 states that have trigger laws. So if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, they immediately ban abortion. So essentially, trigger laws are laws that said if if a Roe v. Wade, um, it becomes no longer the law of the land, that the abortion would be outlawed. Um, either completely or at some type of insane um, week. So like eight weeks after eight weeks in that state. And so many of the states actually have been working at this or passing laws in their state, I would say, to be ready for, I think, the moment that we're in now. Other states um, like California, um, New York, have been... Um, expanding reproductive access in our states with the same type of looking at how do we make sure that regardless of what happens at the federal level, that women still have access in the state. We've also been looking at how to um, really look at the the intersections of what it means to be uh, abortion access when it comes to like the Hyde Amendment and getting rid of that and what we call trap laws, which is another way many of these um, conservative-leaning um, legislators have been putting into place. And trap laws are essentially laws that, um, that are specifically targeted to abortion providers and making it that they have to do some type of crazy type of laws or regulations um in order to exist so for example what happened with the Well Women's case down in Texas, that the clinic needed to have hallways big enough for two gurneys to get past, right? So th- talking about hospital type level um, for a small clinic, and most clinics do not have the funding to rebuild their whole buildings in order to uh, comply with many of those laws. And so between trap laws and trigger laws, we are now looking at the vast majority of states where women live will have less access. And if for some reason um, Roe v. Wade uh, gets dismantled, which we we think might happen in the next couple of years, um, that there would be just no access in their state.
1: You said the vast majority of states. Mm-hmm. I know you you can't list all of the states, but can you tell me like how many-ish? And which states will probably be the first to try and restrict abortion access?
2: I'm not sure which states are the most hungriest for this. Um, of course, Mississippi, Alabama are a couple of the states that do have some of these laws on the books. I also believe Utah does as well. I believe 26 states have some type of anti-abortion um, laws on the books that restrict uh, abortion rights. I know a lot of folks have been doing social justice organizations have been working in civic engagement for a long time and getting folks to color out to vote. Um, but one of the places that we just haven't had our eye on the ball was courts and judges. And this is also why we need to pay super attention to prosecutors and super uh, attention to judges before we even get to the Supreme Court. Uh, most women are having to face these prosecutors, these anti-choice prosecutors and these anti-choice judges that are making and changing the lives of women on a day-to-day basis, right? So for many of the fetus-like laws in the country, it is up to the prosecutor to decide if they want to charge or not, right? And they are the ones that are, uh, I would say, bending the law to their will to start charging pregnant women because the intention of them wasn't really for anti-abortion. It was really to kind of acknowledge pregnant women. Um, and so if you again, uh, commit a crime against a pregnant woman, that there was an extra charge or enhancement charge. And this is what they have been really working on is like, whoa how can we make it homicide or how could we like charge this pregnant woman with um some type of manslaughter like her body for some reason doesn't belong to her when she becomes pregnant and they take her uterus essentially and give it its own rights outside of her So I think what's also interesting, the reproductive justice movement started because of um, particularly Black women were fighting for the rights to have children, why And the feminist movement was right, fighting for the rights not to have children. And so I think that's really important to also think about is how both the anti-choice laws are for all women. However, how as they also try to regulate women's bodies to have children, they are also still working on ways for women of color to not be able to have children, right? We just worked on a bill with Justice Now, and I think, I think we passed it in 2013 to stop the illegal sterilization of women in prison in California, right? And we know that we're vast majority of women of color. So it's always this very, This kind of double-edged sword, I guess, for lack of a better word, of looking at why we see anti-choice laws that impact all women, right, and it criminalizes all women, and many women of color are uh, the ones that actually get criminalized and have to go to jail for these things, that there also is a, a different wave of still using kind of eugenics policies to stop women of color from being able to have children as well. (laughs)
3: <laughs> a little bit about the communities that are most impacted by policies that criminalize pregnant people and that criminalize birth outcomes. In other words, like who are the most affected by these policies and who are the, what, what population of people should we be most concerned about?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, people have many different reasons for seeking abortion care outside of a clinic setting. It may be a first preference for some and a last resort for others. So for some pregnant people, clinic-based care just is not accessible. People may not be able to pull together the funds, particularly in states where public health insurance doesn't cover abortion care. They may face literal physical barriers like border checkpoints that keep them from reaching care or may have to travel long distances because options in their community have disappeared. And then for other people, clinic-based care is not acceptable. That is, it doesn't meet their particular needs. And that might mean that they can't find care that affirms their gender or speaks their language, or they want to to incorporate a spiritual practice or have a particular companion of their choosing who that isn't permitted because of the restrictions on abortion clinics. Or maybe they don't have faith in institutionalized medicine because of histories of abuses like unconsented medical testing and sterilizations and, and they prefer to use methods uh, like medications and remedies that are culturally familiar to them. So all of these factors I just named are more likely to be occurring in communities of color, in immigrant communities, among people living in poverty and queer or gender nonconforming people. Add to that the fact that these communities are already over policed the results are fairly predictable. Our systems control and marginalize the people they were designed to control and marginalize. So in the role of race and ethnicity in this is is undeniable. Uh, black women are vulnerable to criminalization because they experience staggering health disparities uh, that make them more likely to, to have an adverse pregnancy outcome that brings them to the attention of authorities. API women are often automatically under suspicion because of tropes that. The the right has seeded about sex selective abortion and stereotypes about them as mothers, and people with ties to immigrant Latinx communities may have knowledge and access to medications that can safely end a pregnancy that are readily available and have long been in use in in some Latin American countries. I I, I definitely honed in on the the self managed abortion. I know your your question, Imani, was broader than that, so I don't know if if Farah wants to. Having a, a I mean, your response. question definitely
3: answered, my, or your response definitely answered my question, but I'd love to hear from Farah if she has anything to add.
5: You know, I mean, I think that really the answers are the same. Whether we're talking about people who are specifically being criminalized for self-managed abortion or people who are being criminalized for the outcome of a pregnancy in general, the factors that lead people uh, to be in the clutches of law enforcement are the same, right? The increased health risks that they face, and the over of their communities. And I mean, the, it's exactly the same thing.
3: Can you talk a little bit, I know that there have been a lot of studies recently that demonstrate that doctors have inherent biases when it comes to their patients, right? So for example, Yay. there was a study recently of uh, med school students that showed that there were med school students who believed that Black people had different nerve endings, and so therefore didn't feel pain in the same way. And so I'm wondering if those sorts of medical biases could contribute to this sort of over-policing and the, the contact that uh-huh. people of color, low-income women have with the state? Because I imagine that, you know, a doctor would probably treat more kindly a wealthy white woman who may have an addiction to benzos as opposed to a black woman or a brown woman who has an addiction to crack cocaine or a poor white woman who has an addiction to methamphetamines. I mean, there are, is there doctor biases that come into play here?
5: I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, all of it. Um, I think that it, it can play into it in various different ways. I mean, first of all, with how physicians respond to people who disclose to them, you know, either the, uh, that they're using a criminalized drug or that they smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol, right? Um, it, it seems that the, Medical system is, is really geared to do harm reduction well, um, when it comes to, uh, issues that people typically associate with people of privilege, right? Like, I mean, even though we know that alcohol is, is a known, uh, cause of congenital birth defects, people who you know, are, are, who drink alcohol are told, you know, either to cut back or they're told like a one glass of wine won't hurt or whatever. Right. There are all these sort of like con- conflicting things. But if somebody discloses that they're using a criminalized drug or even, you know, that they are using uh, cannabis in states where it's legal, right? Like they are referred to child welfare authorities like that, you know, those I think like really are triggering an instinct to punish. And and certainly I have no doubt um, that the, the biases that come that are baked into the education, um, that, you know, where, wherein people are told that, you know, that black people experience pain in a different way or something like that. Like those, those are definitely going to play out, I think, in the reaction to a pregnancy loss and whether providers extend compassion and care or whether the person is met with suspicion and, you know, treated as a suspect. So you folks recently published a paper on Rose Unfinished Promise, and I'm hoping yes. you can talk a little bit about it. And specifically, I'm going to ask you sort of um, the, I don't know, kind of a mean question, but what's that unfinished promise? How do we finish it? <laughs> Tell us how to fix it all. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Um. So uh, to to talk first about what the report actually is. So Rose Unfinished Promise is the first of its kind comprehensive look at the ways that people who have abortions are criminalized across the country. So we provide a state by state look at the major threats to people who end a pregnancy, uh, including, you know, as we've mentioned, criminal bans on self-induced abortion, criminal abortion laws that are susceptible to misuse. If you decide laws that don't provide adequate protection to pregnant people and states where investigations or prosecutions have taken place. And we refer to it as Roe's unfinished promise in acknowledgement of the fact that Roe really at its core is about decriminalization mm-hmm. and the recognition that criminalizing healthcare endangers and degrades people. Um, so the laws that Roe struck down were criminal abortion laws mm-hmm. and the court acknowledges a fundamental right to decide whether to carry a pregnancy to term. And criminalization really persists where we get sucked into these rabbit holes of abortion jurisprudence and undue burdens, and when we fail to step back and look at the bigger picture, that something that's a fundamental right can't be a crime. So um our, our hope for this report is that it not only provide information about what the law is, but that it also set a vision for what the law should be and how people can contribute to that. I'd say the two biggest misconceptions about self-induced abortion are first, that it doesn't happen anymore. And second, that it's quote unquote, illegal, right? We're trying to both clarify the law and complicate what it means to be illegal or illegal and to help people understand that human rights and constitutional rights outweigh state criminal laws and the unlawful acts of, of rogue prosecutors.
6: Martin Kelly, the series about abortion that is so interesting is that uh, the women profiled have wanted pregnancies.
7: Explain why you came with this focus. Yeah, thank you, Diane. And that's right. We felt really strongly when we were conceptualizing this series that it was important to include those stories. Basically, the origin of this started the moment we heard that Justice Anthony Kennedy was retiring <laughs> this past summer. Yes. Um, yeah, it was just immediately clear to me and some of my colleagues that Roe v. Wade was obviously going to be a giant issue going forward. And indeed, you know, with the ascension of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme court, that is exactly where we have found ourselves. So we knew that abortion rights were going to be a huge issue. Um, But, you know, what we really wanted to make clear with this series is that as important as abortion rights are, and they absolutely are central to women's rights and bodily autonomy, there is a bigger issue here. Um, This really is a broad problem of women being criminalized, being punished for the outcomes of their pregnancy, you know, and that includes stillbirths and miscarriages in many cases.
6: You know, that's really extraordinary. How can a woman be criminalized for a miscarriage? Give me an example.
7: So these are often very tragic cases, and they're really Tragedies compounded upon tragedies. Sure. Um, one example I can give you uh, is there was a woman who was 22 years old, pregnant with her third child. This was back in 2010, I believe. Um, she tripped over one of her children's toys and fell down the stairs. Oh. Um, you- you know, that is, again, it's a tragic situation. It's also something that, you know, I am not pregnant right now. And if I were to fall down the stairs, um, I would certainly need medical care, but this would not be a potential criminal situation. Exactly. However, in her case, because she did happen to be pregnant and because when she got to the emergency room, she sort of confided in a nurse there that her marriage was on the rocks. She was having some sort of conflicted and ambivalent feelings about her pregnancy. Pregnancy, And she was sort of scared about being a mother of three. And this was taken as some sort of warning sign against her. And she was arrested, charged with attempted feticide, and she ended up spending two nights in jail.
6: As though she had tripped intentionally and tried to kill the child.
7: That's right. And in so many of these cases, the laws are written in such a way where they are really expressly not intended to be used against the woman who is pregnant. But you get overzealous prosecutors, and you get a growing anti-abortion sentiment around the country. And it's a cocktail for women, in fact, being charged with these sorts of crimes.
6: Well, it's also a gaining of ground for the idea that a fetus at whatever stage of development has rights. Explain the idea of fetal personhood for us.
7: Fetal personhood is the idea that a fetus is a legal human being separate and apart from the woman who is carrying that fetus. There are a lot of different laws and legal precedents around the country that have established this notion. And it has been a big focus of the anti-abortion movement for years, the history of this fetal personhood idea is really pretty closely tied to the rise of the anti-abortion movement. So, you know, we start seeing these kinds of laws in the 70s, sort of around when the Roe v. Wade decision was decided. And then you sort of see those efforts ramp up through the 80s, through the 90s, through today. At this point there are 38 states that have fetal homicide laws and those are laws that treat a fetus as a potential crime victim separate from the woman carrying it. And I think it is very clear to folks in that anti-abortion movement that this is their moment. They are absolutely aware of the fact as, you know, we were, the that moment when uh, Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement and me and my colleagues just knew instantly what this could mean. They had that exact same level of awareness. They've been working on this for years and years. And so this is their time to shine. We saw just in November, Alabama passed a personhood amendment to their state constitution. So if Roe was overturned, that would go into effect. And I I would expect we're going to see more efforts along those lines in the coming months and years.
6: So we're not just talking about a fetus that may have developed, say, in the fourth, fifth month.
7: In many cases, that. That's right. There is a whole sort of patchwork of laws that we're talking about here. And some of them are more strict than others. And some of them, frankly, more well-meaning than others. You can sort of understand where at least some of these laws came from. But yes, some of them, for instance, do not state that the fetus must be viable. So that's right now, typically after 20 to 23 weeks or so. Some of them really do potentially criminalize women and other people for harming fetuses really from a very, very early stage, from the moment of conception. So
6: we're talking about efforts then to reverse Roe v. Wade in these laws that are being adopted around the country.
7: That is right. So the issue here is that on a fundamental level, fetal personhood is just incompatible with the Roe v. Wade decision. Justice Harry Blackmun, he wrote in his majority opinion in the Roe decision. This is a quote from him. He said, if this suggestion of personhood is established, Roe's case, of course, collapses for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. So he was very aware at the time, as Roe was decided, that if personhood for fetuses was established at the federal level, Roe would fall apart. And again, this is something that the anti-abortion movement is very, very aware of. So it's kind
6: of the backdoor way to say that personhood is established at the moment of conception to make anything that then happens to that group of cells, something you would call infanticide.
7: Personhood laws and laws that establish legal rights for fetuses more broadly, they raise a lot of legal and frankly, kind of philosophical questions. You know, there's questions like, a woman who chooses to smoke a cigarette or have a glass of wine during her pregnancy, would that be a crime? Those things are not illegal right now. You know, there might be certainly guidelines against doing them, but should you be arrested for doing those things? Likewise, you know, let's say a woman is pregnant, whether she knows it or not at that stage and she goes climbing a mountain or she rides a roller coaster or she goes to a war zone. There's just a lot of questions about what would happen to those women, not to mention women who are pregnant and they get diagnosed with cancer. What if they want to undergo chemotherapy that could harm their fetus? What does that mean? And I think these are the kinds of questions we're grappling with.
6: You know, all of this, Lauren, really does remind me of Margaret Atwood's remarkably visionary book, The Handmaid's Tale. Would you agree? You and me
7: both. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually have to confess here that, of course, the term Handmaid's Tale was invoked a number of times as we were working on this project, because there are a number of stories that really just remind you far too much of it.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair—outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results gorgeous, shiny, multi dimensional, healthy looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT.
8: Now let's find out why women are getting them and the risks involved. Heather Rogers, our reporter, headed to an abortion clinic in San Antonio, Texas, called Whole Women's Health.
9: Whole
8: Women's Health, how can I help you? Hi, Heather. Hi, Wendy. So before we look into the studies on why women are getting abortions, can you just tell me a little bit about this clinic? Like, who was in the waiting room? What what age group are we talking about?
10: It was surprising because most of the women in the waiting room when I was there definitely didn't look like teenagers like there were some teenagers there but the women were older i mean they were they were in their 20s some look To me, definitely in their 30s. And there were even a couple who looked like they were in their 40s. Does that stack up with the data on this? So that does line up with the data that we found. And what what that shows is that most women who have abortions are in their 20s and 30s. And teenagers, they only make up about 12% of all the women who get abortions.
8: How many of these women already had kids? 60%. 60% of women getting abortions in America are already moms. They're already moms. They already have kids. And did you get to speak to some women there?
10: Yeah, I talked to a couple women.
8: And why were they getting abortions?
10: It was interesting. They were getting abortions because one woman told me she she just wasn't ready to have a child. And the other woman told me that she already has a daughter and she's about to join the Air Force. And she doesn't have the money for it.
11: It's expensive. It's so much more expensive than people think. And it's so much more work than people think. And I just... I'm not ready for that right now. Again, I'm not.
8: Like it's it's always hard when you go to one clinic, and you know, do we know if this is representative of what's happening across America?
10: Right, right. So, like, does the specific represent the general, exactly? Picture, right? So, this clinic, it does actually in many ways, not in every way. So, there's this study from 2013. That looked at almost a thousand women who wanted abortions and it found that 40% of them wanted abortions for financial reasons. So they didn't, they had financial problems or they couldn't afford to support a child. And that was the biggest reason. That was the most common reason that, that women gave. Another common reason was that the timing wasn't right and they just weren't ready to care for a child. So there was also another reason, and almost a third of the women who got abortions, they got them for quote-unquote partner-related reasons. What that means is that they didn't have a good or supportive relationship with the man who got them pregnant, and in some cases these men were physically abusive. So some women spoke to me, uh, but then the clinic has these journals, and the women who come through who get abortions can write entries in those journals. And they yeah, let I us really flip through some people. of these yeah. journals. So you're going to hear Rachel Ward. She was with me. She's a yeah. producer here at Gimlet, and we went to Texas together.
7: This woman said, "This is not a baby. It's an embryo slash blood clot slash thick cell that can really alter a person's life. So
12: this woman, she said she's never been faced with such a decision. She's been raised not believing in abortion and always preached to others that unless you were a victim of rape or having this baby would result in death then it was not right this is not your decision to make only god can take a life the reason she's here is because she's a single mom of two children and she says that she she does it and they live comfortably but she doesn't know if she can make it alone with three small kids I will walk out of here and no longer be pregnant and go home and love my two babies just as much as I did before I walked into this place. I just hope that I am still allowed to walk into heaven one day. May God see my pain and my struggle, and may God be with me and you.
8: And what about this this religious aspect? You really don't hear a lot about women who say they are religious, getting abortions.
10: Yeah. So there's this data from the Guttmacher Institute, and it says that almost 25%, about a quarter of all women who get abortions, these are 2014 numbers, identified as Catholic. A quarter? Yeah. It's pretty surprising. And then... In addition to that, 17% of women who got abortions that year identified as as what they called mainline Protestant. And then 13% more identified as evangelical Protestant.
8: Okay, so just to wrap a bow around this, what the science and the data is telling us is that all kinds of women get abortions, religious, not religious. And women are getting these abortions for a lot of complicated reasons, but one of the most common is that it's about the finances, they don't have enough money, or having an unsupportive partner, or saying that the timing just isn't right.
11: eight years since the 2010 midterms. There have been sort of a record number of anti-abortion legislation passed across the country, um, really in every state, um, in almost every state. Um, Hundreds of laws have been introduced and many of them passed, and they've really run the gamut in the ways in which they restrict abortion. But, you know, they either um, limit when you can get an abortion, so they make it illegal to get an abortion after, say, 15 weeks or 20 weeks, um, or they make it harder for providers of abortion to do their jobs by requiring that they, you know, have hallways a certain width or that they. Meet with their clients or patients several times before offering the abortion. Trump's election sort of solidified this idea that access to abortion in clinics um, was sort of had reached its peak and was going to decrease, um, access would decrease going forward. And one of the promises that Trump made. Um, During his campaign was that he would actually overturn Roe v. Wade and would basically make getting abortions illegal. So what does abortion look like when it's no longer legal and also when it's effectively not legal um, and available because of these restrictions? If abortion becomes illegal, more people will
1: probably turn to in-home abortions. Fortunately, self-managed methods have improved greatly over the past decades. And now, as in the past, there's a
13: growing movement of brave folks building a network to share knowledge and support. When we look at the underground abortion movement on a worldwide level, what we see is women rising to the needs of anyone that is desires reproductive freedom. When you have a pregnancy and you cannot handle that and you need to terminate it, you need to be able to do that. The reason that right now there's more action is because people don't trust the state. We have so much legislation. What we just saw in Texas with the closure of abortion centers, we see an onslaught of hatred and anti-abortion legislation that has been exceedingly positive for them. We are not winning. The reason women are gathering is because we've been losing ground. I think it's very important as a feminist revolutionary that we recognize that we are living in fascist times and that it has always been so that we have been under control as women or trying to be under control. But I have to say that We live in one nation under surveillance and that it's very important that we proceed carefully, cautiously, and recognize that we must step forward. This is not the time for passivity. The earth depends on us taking action and making a stand. If you're sitting on the fence right now, you really just have a stick up your You've got to make a decision and take a step and learning about your body And taking responsibility for yourself, for your reproductive health. That is revolutionary. So welcome to the team because the world needs you and we need knowledge to be shared, not controlled.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but If you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
14: The book report that we rolled out yesterday was Handbook for a Post-Roe America by Robin Marty. Uh, The, uh, I think, Katha Pollitt's blurb on the front cover. The future without Roe is coming straight at us. This is a roadmap you need for the tough times ahead. Is uh, you know a really great summary of the book, and I thought it was just a marvelous book, and I wanted to get Robin on to talk about this book, hand, The Handbook for a Post-Roe, ROE, as in Roe v. Wade America. The book is uh, from Seven Stories Press, and uh, Robin Marty's uh, Twitter handle is Robin, M-A-R-T-Y. Robin, welcome to the program.
9: Thanks so much for having me on, Tom.
14: It's great having you with us. So um, tell us how how certain are you that this particular Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade? Or is it that the individual states are taking actions right now that are functionally doing that, and nobody is stopping them, so we don't even need the Supreme Court to screw it up?
9: Well, I would say that the states are functionally stopping abortion from being accessible for the most part, but I do believe that this Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, I would suspect that the actual overturning would happen as late as or as soon as after the next presidential election. I do not think that they will overturn it before 2020 because they know that if that happens, there is no way they would keep the White House. But I do believe that after that has settled, that yes, Roe will be overturned.
14: That's amazing. So what what will that mean for women in states like California uh, or New York where abortion is still available or in states like Louisiana, you know, where where it's very, very difficult to access abortion?
9: Right. Um, So we're going to have a patchwork even more so than we already have of states that will primarily be either on the east or west coast and then basically Colorado and Illinois, where abortion will be legal and accessible and people will be able to get it. And then for the rest of the country, we'll see at least 15 states that will have abortion completely illegal and then probably another 15 to 20 where abortion will be mostly illegal and you will only be able to access it at maybe one or two clinics in the state. And probably in as little as six to twelve weeks,
14: isn't the the functional outcome of that going to be that we are reverting back to the pre row standard essentially of uh, wealthier women upper uh, middle upper middle class and wealthier women can easily access abortion uh, women who don't have access to money basically can't. I remember being in high school, uh, you know, uh, a, I I remember one, one girl in particular, uh, who was in my high school, who I didn't, I didn't know particularly well, but, um, one day she just stopped coming to school and we later learned that she had died. She had had a uh, back alley abortion and, and became septic and got an infection and literally just died in one day. Um, and on the other hand, I remember, a couple of uh, different people that I knew, and this was back in the 60s, right? This was the late 60s, um, who had what were called DNCs. They would go in, they would say, and the excuse was, I was having hard periods. And so they'd go in for this process where they basically scrape out the inside of the uterus. And in fact, usually the DNCs being done in the 60s were actually early stage abortions. And, you know, if you could afford to go to the hospital and have a DNC, no problem. Is that the kind of thing we're going to go back to, or is it going to be even worse than that?
9: Well, see, I would argue that we're already there right now. Um, For many of the states in the U.S., especially in the southern portion of the U.S. and along the Gulf, we only have one, maybe two abortion clinics in each of those states. They're very overfilled with patients. Um, Abortion is still a fairly expensive procedure that a lot of people cannot obtain. So we are seeing people who already are living in states where abortion access is just for the white and for the wealthy. In some ways, I actually believe that having Roe overturned might benefit the country because when abortion is completely illegal in these states, and then it is difficult even for those of privilege and those with money to be able to access, then people will see the real live impact of what it's like when there is no access to abortion. Once it affects everyone, then I think that everybody will start to go ahead and gather together and do more political force to make sure that abortion becomes legal once more.
14: Speaking of this strategically, uh, uh, we used to have conversations, debates about abortion on this program, you know, for, for years, obviously. I mean, it's a hot topic. It's been a hotter topic in the past. But Phyllis Schlafly used to come on this show a lot. And she, of course, yeah, <laughs> I get it. And, and uh, you know, she and I actually agree on a couple of things that have to do with the Supreme Court, which has uh, made for some fascinating conversations. The argument that she made against Roe v. Wade, though, I thought was actually a fascinating argument. I'd love to get your take on it. What she said, essentially, was that had... That, you know, the birth control pill was legalized in 61 or was brought to market in 61. By 63, 64, birth control pills were widely available all across the United States. And that produced the, the so-called sexual revolution. Women coming into the workplace because, you know, in, in larger numbers, all these kind of things were happening. And that by 73, the trend line was very strongly in favor of individual states legalizing abortion. And in fact, it was starting to happen and the a debate was starting to break out in individual states about do we legalize abortion or not in this state and that when the supreme court stepped in with roe v wade and simply legalized abortion nationwide with uh, a very specific criteria the first 3 months the second 3 months the third you know these trimesters that essentially you know her her argument was a they were making law you know and and i don't think that we can dispute that you know coming up with the three trimesters that's the, that's what a legislature is supposed to do and b you know the the court has no there's no constitutional basis for that and b by short circuiting that legislative process around the country they shut down the conversation and they empowered the radical the radicalized portion of the anti abortion movement in a way that nothing else could have empowered them and delayed in fact by generations the, the, you know, a healthy legislative process that would have this debate, this discussion that you and I are having. What do you think about that?
9: Um, not to be rude, but that's totally wrong. Okay, Um, all right. To start with, the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade did not come up with a trimester system. That was in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 92. And the trimester system says that abortion should be accessible for any reason in the first trimester. In the second trimester, the state's decisions to try and promote fetal life should be able to, they should be able to put in restrictions as long as those restrictions did not make an undue burden and were in the benefit of of the health of the person who was trying to the procedure. Um, Roe v. Wade essentially said that until the point of fetal viability, which at that point was considered around 28, 29 weeks, that abortion was legal and up to the person who was going to have one. After that, abortion would only be legal in cases where a person's physical or mental health were in, were in distress. And so a provider decided that that was in the person's best interest to go ahead and obtain an abortion. So we tend to get these mixed up. And yeah, under- thanks
14: for clarifying that.
9: Yeah, and so one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately when you look at the fight that's going on right now in New York, um, the huge brouhaha that just happened in Virginia over the idea of all of these bills in Virginia, in New York, in New Mexico – All they are trying to do is codify the protections of Roe v. Wade because they believe that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. So they are using the exact same framework as the courts decided in Roe v. Wade, which is that until the point of viability, it is up to the person who is going to decide to have an abortion. And then after the point of viability, it's available for health reasons, physical or mental all they are doing is codifying Roe v. Wade. Now, if abortion opponents really believed what they've been saying for the last 30 years, which is that they don't want to stop abortion per se, they just want to send it back to the states, then they would be letting these states make these decisions. But instead, they're making up all sorts of asinine discussions about how people are saying that these new laws will allow doctors to abort children at the point of crowning, and um, it's infanticide and all of that. And I think they're really showing exactly how how they really don't believe that no they state should not decide all they want and all they've ever wanted is complete illegality for all abortion from the point of fertilization and that's where they're going to keep going everything else is just smoke screen
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, protect real reproductive health care. In the latest blow to reproductive justice, over the last few months, the Trump administration has made radical changes to Title X, which is the only federal program exclusively dedicated to providing low-income people with affordable birth control and reproductive health care. In addition to redirecting federal funds away from actual health care providers and restricting providers from delivering medically accurate and essential information to their patients, the changes could put more than 40% of the more than 4 million Title X patients at risk of losing access to care. Last month, the administration had announced it would be giving as much as 5.2 million dollars in Title X funds over the next three years to a California organization called OBRIA Group. It'll come as no surprise that OBRIA is a nonprofit crisis pregnancy center funded by allies of the Catholic Church that describes itself as being "quote unquote" led by God, and "quote unquote." natural family planning, with unabashed aims to divert patients and money away from Planned Parenthood. Of course, that's also the aim of the Trump administration. In February, the Department of Health and Human Services rushed through a gag rule that blocks Title X funds from going to health care providers that perform abortions or give their patients referrals to get abortions elsewhere. This is a workaround to disqualify Planned Parenthood from receiving any federal funding, even though the Hyde Amendment already prevents federal dollars from being used for abortions. Since Planned Parenthood serves 41% of the 4 million people who rely on Title X for reproductive health care, most of whom are people of color under 30 years old, more than a million and a half people would lose reproductive care. A lawsuit has already been filed by Planned Parenthood. California and a coalition of 21 states, including D.C., are also suing the administration over the Title X changes. Like many other issues, people of color and those in poverty will be disproportionately and negatively impacted by these new restrictions. The left needs to get collectively louder about the damage being done, and there are a few ways you can help amplify that message. First and foremost, call your members of Congress to tell them to support the Each Woman Act, which aims to end the Hyde Amendment's blockade on federal funds going towards abortion costs. After first introducing the act in the House in 2015, Congressional Pro-Choice Caucus co-chair Barbara Lee reintroduced it in March. The Senate version is being led by Senators Tammy Duckworth, Mazie Hirano, Patty Murray, and Kamala Harris. In an interview, Senator Duckworth said, quote, We should all agree that what's legal for a wealthy American shouldn't be illegal or inaccessible for a poor American or a person of color. And that's what this bill is about. Fairness, equality, and equal opportunity. Unquote. Title X has also been at the mercy of funding cuts. Nearly every state has experienced federal funding cuts to the Title X Family Planning Program since 2010. So we also encourage you to check out NationalFamilyPlanning.org's interactive map to find out how Title X impacts your state and share this important data and information with your networks. You can also help amplify the benefits of Title X by downloading the Save Title X graphics created by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists psychologists, and sharing them on social media. If you happen to be a physician, check out the other actions this organization encourages you to take. This conversation is also happening on Twitter with the hashtag protect 10 that's with 10 as an x if you'd like to learn more or engage the segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at best so if protecting quality reproductive health care and justice is important to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about protecting title 10 via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too
4: can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
15: Now it's time to talk about mothers and pregnant women and how they are discriminated against and punished here at home and around the world. For that miserable story, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Katha, welcome back.
16: Thanks for having me with this depressing story.
15: (laughs) Well, Donald Trump's cruelty to children crossing the border is only the beginning of the bad things that happen to children uh, in the United States, most of which have nothing to do with Donald Trump. Where should we start? How about, how about the rates of infant and maternal mortality in the United States?
16: Yes, well, although we are very proud of our medical system, and although we are a high-income country, the rate of maternal mortality in the United States is the highest in the developed world, which is really pretty shocking. Um, And we have a very high rate of infant mortality as well. And uh, here's something really shocking. Ours is the only country where the death rate for women, uh, the maternal death rate for women is rising.
15: Oh, um, why? Everywhere
16: else, in the, everywhere else in the world is getting better, and we're getting worse.
15: Um, why, well, Katha, of, I have to ask you, why is that?
16: Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. There's poverty, there's racism, hospitals and doctors that are ill-prepared for obstetric emergencies, and the low priority given to the issue. And here's another really upsetting detail. For every woman who dies, which is about 700 every year in the U.S., 70 almost do. mm And this falls especially heavily on uh, black women. So it's really a very serious problem.
15: And I understand from your new column in The Nation that part of this serious problem arises out of the practices of Catholic hospitals.
16: Well, this is really amazing. One in six hospital beds is in a Catholic hospital. And in much of the country, that's the only hospital that's around. And this, again, is affects disproportionately rural women and women of color who tend to live in those areas. So that means that procedures that are banned by the church are unavailable to many patients, and that would include birth control, sterilization, male sterilization, like vasectomies, abortion, in vitro fertilization, and most disturbingly from the death point of view, uh, standard ways of managing miscarriages, you know, if you have a miscarriage and it is incomplete, they'll give you a DNC they'll, to get the fetus and the birth matter, whatever they call it, out of you. Several women have nearly died because the Catholic hospital refused to complete a miscarriage in process. And this was the same thing. The same, these are the same rules that killed Savita Halapanavar in Ireland which was just so shocking and so horrified people that it jump-started the campaign to overturn that country's abortion ban. Because in Catholicism, apparently, completing a miscarriage before the, the fetal heartbeat is dead, even though that fetus will never survive, it's dying, it's too young to survive, that's abortion to them.
15: Abortion opponents do argue that having a baby is is a good thing, a natural thing, and a socially important thing, what do we do uh, in the United States to help women who are pregnant?
16: Well, we just don't do very much. In fact, we make life harder for them. We have laws that are supposed to protect pregnant women from job discrimination, but it's rampant anyway, um, as it is around the world. And the New York Times had an article recently about women being denied, you know, just the most ordinary accommodations, like, can I carry a water bottle? I need an extra bathroom break. Mm. Um, I'm a policeman, a policewoman. How about a bulletproof It fits? <laughs> and, and you know that these things, it's not so hard to give someone a water bottle, yeah. um, that these things are done out of hostility to pregnant women. It's to drive them out of the workplace.
15: One of the other things you emphasize in your new column is among the bad things that that happen to children and their mothers in the United States is poverty. Huge numbers of children live in poverty. What are your figures
16: there? Oh, well, this is so shocking. This is just so shocking. 34% of black kids, that's a little bit over one in three, 28% of Latino kids And for whites, it's still too high 12%. Um,
15: There was an idea that the government should deal with trying to reduce poverty among children, that it's bad for children to grow up in poverty, and therefore we should have government programs. And there was a government program. It was called... Originally, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, it was part of Social Security. It was established in 1935 and it was abolished in 1996. Who was president in 1996?
16: Well, it was, it was Bill Clinton who was president and the rules have got, it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. States are allowed to cut all kinds of things. I mean, there are cuts in food stamps now, for God's sake. Everything that could help kids. Is being cut from after school programs. You know, Betsy DeVos just said, uh, you know, well, let's give the schools some money to buy guns for teachers. <laughs> and then we read in another article the teachers spend about five hundred dollars each buying supplies for their for the kids. Yeah. It it is as if, I don't know, it's as if we have really given up on very large numbers of people, most of whom are, are people of color.
15: I know you remember this. When Bill Clinton advocated for abolishing aid for families with dependent children in 1996, he said he was against welfare because he was in favor of personal responsibility in bearing children and raising them. Are you against personal responsibility?
16: No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not at all. Um, And that's why I favor lots lots of free birth control, lots of access to abortion, giving people the kinds of opportunities that will help them have real choices in life. But you have to deal with the world as it is. If someone has a baby, you have to take care of mother and child. Also people have kids when they're in a good place and then a few years later they're not. I mean yeah. there's, you know, if you've had much to do with low income people, their lives can be very um
15: precarious precarious
16: precarious the very word. Yeah. Um and so it just as it just seems like they're getting ahead, there's some big expense, someone is sick, they lose their job and it's they're just on this kind of awful treadmill and I think that the government has a responsibility to give people a stable, decent life. And I don't even think that's so controversial.
15: The other argument that was made against AFDC uh, was that it was paying women to have children.
16: Oh, that was so ridiculous. And, you know, there was that thing, what is it, the family cap, where certain states, I think New Jersey was one, I think Massachusetts became one, uh, which you'll note are blue states, but a lot of other states did this too, which was to say, if you're on welfare and you have another baby, we're not going to increase the amount of money that you get. So instead of you're taking care of, you know, two children on X dollars a month, now you'll be taking care of three children on X dollars a month. This was supposed to make poor families on welfare be prudent about birth control and all like that. Did it work? I mean, there were people, you know, I remember I remember reading an article by Stanley Crouch, who's a, you know, big black writer. Writing in the Daily News saying, well, this will take care of that problem. Um, because people just don't think. They don't think, what are people really like? How do people really make decisions? And you know, the one way they don't make decisions is saying, you know, I would get $50 if I had a month if I had another baby. God.
4: <laughs>
16: and now, I, so I'll have the baby. And oh, they're not going to give me the $50, so I guess I won't have a baby. That's not how people think. So, anyway, this was fantastically unsuccessful in lowering the rate of children born to women who are already on welfare. And I just read that Massachusetts is thinking, well, we should get rid of this family cap thing. It doesn't work.
15: So our initial premise was Donald Trump's cruelty to children has been horrifying, but most of the problems facing children, especially poor children in the United States, have not been caused by Donald Trump. Some were caused by Bill Clinton. Some are caused by the Pope. There are a
16: lot of people at fault here, it's true.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Making Contact, discussing the myriad laws at the state level that severely restrict abortion and are ready to outlaw it at the drop of a hat if Roe is overturned. Boom Lawyered discussed inherent racial bias in healthcare and the most affected communities. Diane Rehm explained the consequences of establishing a fetal personhood standard. Science Versus got into some of the reasons why people choose to have abortions. Making Contact talked about the rising need for at-home abortion solutions. The Tom Hartman program discussed what may happen when and if Roe is overturned. And finally, we just heard Katha Pollitt on Start Making Sense discussing many angles of the politics of motherhood, including racism and religion. Members will be getting a bonus episode this week with additional clips, one that describes the consequences for a pregnant person who is also addicted to drugs and how if they were to go to a doctor for treatment, they may very well land in jail because this is America. Uh, Plus more on ways that Roe is being chipped away. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. If that's too steep for you, though, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you.
17: Hey, I'm Ryan from Chicago by way of London. Jay, loved your addition of some nuance to the pop culture definition of racism. I myself am black and have had some challenging discussions, uh, even with members of my extended family trying to parse out this distinction between prejudice on the basis of race and then when institutional powers combined with that prejudice what manifests. and i like uh, the white owned versus black owned businesses as a, as a good example of that i just remember in one exchange with an extended family member you know i, I described how racism is just not an epithet or a pe- pejorative you know and if it didn't involve the you know higher interest rates or the firings or state sanctioned terror the John Burgess of the world it would be a far lower threat and the same is true with gender bias you know without the pay gap or the lack of pay for care work for example I also liked your discussion of uh, representation as you know a means of feeling seen and breaking down limitations I think we can acknowledge that and also push back against the grants of the world that believe that identities stand in for value, because it can't. Identity can't stand in for values. I mean, we have to accept that there's a cohort of Americans who have a political ethos that you can basically boil down to wanting in on the con. People who are fine with our barbaric system as long as, you know, it's evenly distributed. I kind of want to double down on the value of representation in two ways. First, is just more of the liberal framing. Countless studies, what, 2000 McKinsey study, you know, racial and gender diversity made companies between 15 and 35 percent more likely to have returns above the mean. Journal on personality and social psychology talks about diverse groups uh, making fewer factual errors. There's research in the U.K. about more diverse leadership leading to more successful new products. And I think it's important to not only acknowledge what it feels to constituents, but then the degree of effectiveness that a body can have when it has people from different perspectives. So that's kind of the, the more liberal framing. And then I think a leftist framing, you know, has to, has to contend with the fact that poverty in this country is racialized. And the left needs black and brown allies. And we need black and brown folks to see their destinies intertwined with other folks in society so we can build that majority. We shouldn't demonize the fair inference that, you know, someone with whom you share an identity is probably more likely to understand and empathize. But, I mean, I think, you know, in a case where we're talking about Booker or Harris versus Sanders, we have to point out the ways in which their policies and their commitments and their constituents fall short, demonstrate our own political processes, uh, our political project's commitment to universal proposals and particular proposals that, uh, you know, address particular harms and ills. And then we, you know, advance people of color and uh, build coalitions with groups of people of color. I think that's, The pathway. And I, so, you know, brings me all the way back around to kind of what's happening locally in Chicago, where, you know, we're going to have five to six open socialists on city council. Uh, It's heartening, but it should trouble leftists that, you know, a majority of the South Side went for Willie Wilson, buffoonish reactionary in the initial vote. It should be troubling the leftists that not only in places where socialists won, but in places where the majority of voters are poor and working, the candidate backed by organized labor got trounced in the mayoral runoff. And it should really trouble leftists that the only ward on the south side or west side where socialists prevailed involved the, the sitting aldermen being indicted by federal prosecutors and the ward encompassed a portion of the University of Chicago's campus. So, I mean, we have to do better. We have to, you know, as a black leftist, I want to kind of do all that I can to bridge the gap between some of these core issues and support candidates and organizations that do. But I mean, the left has to get better at sharing our vision with our most natural allies. And it sort of starts by acknowledging the value of representation. Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, Ryan, who we just heard from, had a whole lot to say, Obviously, I'm not going to respond to almost any of it, just one little bit, because he said something that uh, he, he not only phrased what he said in a way that I really enjoyed, but he's touching on a really important topic that is, I would say, relatively new to me. But but I'm I'm quickly. Becoming aware of how important this topic is to understand and to be able to describe to other people. And I mean, I, you know, I'd start sounding like Trump if I were to say like, you know, very few people realize, but it, so I'm not saying I'm necessarily on the cutting edge of this. I'm sure a lot of people are, have been aware of this for a long time, but it, it's new to me. I, I try to at least learn from the people who are on the cutting edge. So, uh, you, we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping it'll be new to to a lot of people. So anyway, what Ryan was talking about, he was saying how identities can't stand in for values. And then the, the flip side of that, and this is the phrase that I, I really loved is he said, because there are always going to be some people who want in on the con. And I, I love that description. And uh, so much so that I, I realized I could talk about it here at the end and play a bonus clip for you that I had originally edited out of the show because they touch on this subject, but don't explain it very well. And I thought, well, if I just leave it in sort of dangling there and a bunch of people hear it and they don't know what is being talked about, they don't understand the concept. Who knows? It could do more harm than good. I'm just going to leave it out for the sake of simplicity and, and we'll we'll tackle this topic some other time. But Since Ryan brought it up and got me thinking about it, uh, here we are talking about it. So here's a quick extra clip from uh, Making Contact that we heard on the show, and uh, you know, listen to it. Maybe you'll totally get it. Maybe you'll be left in the dark, and uh, I'll come back and discuss afterward.
2: I was reading an article this this morning, and it said it is not all women who are conflicted about Kavanaugh. It's white women. And it broke down many of the polls that were happening. And then when they broke it down by race, it was really women of color who weren't with Kavanaugh. White women were split. I think we need to start paying attention to the idea of like women at this monolithic group and that we all have the same things to lose. When we have these conversations, particularly around the anti-choice movement, we cannot take privilege out of that conversation and how that can be very pervasive and how in which people who I would think that will be wanting to protect their rights for their own body uh, might choose privilege over their gender. Privilege in, in what sense? Essentially trying to save Whiteness um, over the sense of womaness, right? If we keep white folks in power, right, um, and you know, decrease access to people of color, then we have, um, you know, we're still winning, even if it's at the loss of our own bodies.
0: So what's being talked about here is essentially it's like the ugly sibling of intersectionality, intersectionality being the recognition that politics and reality influences people in different ways. It influences a person because they're a woman, but it also influences them because they're a person of color. And actually, when you are at the intersection of both of those things, then everything sort of interacts with you in a totally different way. And so recognizing how many people will actually betray the way we would argue from a progressive point of view, betray their sort of brothers and sisters fighting for equality on intersectional grounds for the sake of additional power or, or possibly even wealth for themselves in, in a particular way. So she was just describing putting whiteness above womanhood in, in this case. And so, if this is at all confusing, let me like go in a totally different direction and describe a few people, <laughs> a few archetypes of people who do this sort of thing. So women who say they like being cat called is a good example of someone who would betray their womanhood for the sake of sort of power, maybe like social uh, capital. You know, so someone says, like, hey, I don't even know why women are complaining about being street harassed. Like, I take it as a compliment. It's a it's a self-esteem boost for me because I'm hollow inside. You know, at, at the very least, someone like that gets social capital with men for saying something like that. But if you were to say that on television, well, then you're going to get paid, too. Or uh, women who take the side of Neoliberalism over working mothers. They'll say like, you know, well, of course they deserve to be paid less. They took time off to make a human. Personally, I get ahead in my job by not even taking any of the vacation time that my company offers. So my career is going gangbusters because I have no personal life and I'm hollow inside. So, again, in this situation, you know, a woman saying that is selling out the the demand for equality that other women are calling for. In exchange for power comes in the form of better career advancement and more money. It comes with some social power that comes with that money or, or comes with the people you work with. Often a lot of men at, at higher levels. And so getting in good with that uh, gets you not just financial uh, incentives, but social power as well. And, and then on the other side, you know, you get people of color who will argue that, you know, the oppression of black people, uh, the the oppression they experience is really just the result of personal failings. It's not really systemic. It's really just all on them. So, you know, well, of course they can't get jobs. They refuse to pull their pants up, you know, but I've been gainfully employed my whole life because I always pull my pants up and I make sure to agree with all white perceptions of black people to make them comfortable enough with me to hire me. See, that's all you have to do. So basically... It's it's anyone who is willing to go along with the established order, the established power structure. If you're willing to defend patriarchy, if you're willing to defend white supremacy, you can get power for that. I mean, if if you're a white guy and you want to defend those things, like, sure, that's going to work in your benefit. But man, if you're a woman or a person of color and you're working to uphold the systems of oppression that are working directly against you, you will get rewarded. So basically, if you want to find examples of what I'm talking about, just turn on Fox News and listen to any woman or any person of color who isn't angrily disagreeing with the hosts, and you will have a perfect case study of someone who is selling out the freedoms and equality of the people they share their identity with for the sake of getting in on the con, which manifests itself as either personal power, as I described, social capital, And actual wealth, as evidenced by the fact that people on Fox News are making six figures and they're on TV. This is what the clip means when it talks about white women being the only group of women who were conflicted about Kavanaugh. They were conflicted about upholding the white male power structure that although they they themselves are not the the most direct beneficiaries of, they, they do themselves benefit from it because of their closeness to that power, often through marriage to white guys. But you know, maybe in those other ways I was describing, just, just being on that side can uh, you know, help you get ahead in a patriarchal white supremacist world. The alternative that they may have been struggling with was actually siding with women who don't benefit from that power structure, mostly due to the color of their skin or their sexuality or their economic status. So that was the conflict. Same as the conflict among white women that made more than half of them vote for Trump. Do I hang on to the little bit of power I have, or do I risk what I have by fighting for genuine equality? That's the question. And it turns out that loss aversion is a very powerful psychological phenomenon. So they stay in on the con. If you'd like to comment on this or anything else, I'd love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and